Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, well, good morning to you. My name is Pastor Chris. My name is Chris. Why did I say pastor? That's weird. I guess I am a pastor. I just don't introduce myself that way. Uh, But I am so thrilled to be here with you this morning. I get to hang out with youth and young adults in this church a lot. And it's been a while since I've preached uh, and so I'm so thrilled, so honored to get to be up here and, and share with you this morning. Man, so much we could celebrate, hey? Last week we had 51 people get baptized between our 11 and, uh, 9 and 11 a.m. services. Isn't that just incredible? 51 people getting baptized. And I don't know if I mentioned it in both services, but we actually weren't the only church in our region that was baptizing people last weekend either. So it just leads me to ask, God, what are you up to? As so many people are responding to that call of baptism and giving their yes to Jesus, I just think that's a beautiful thing. So last week, Pastor Stefan delivered a message called Remember Jesus. It's part of a larger series that will be interjected here and there called Heart Check. We've been blessed with some really rich theological messages these past couple weeks uh, and months. And so we've been looking at God's grand story and following along, you know, the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation tell us of God's grand story of redemption. And it's a beautiful thing. And then Pastor Ray and Pastor Stefan have also been talking about Israel uh, these last couple weeks. And we had just an amazing sermon series on Israel and God's not finished with his people yet. Amen? And so, the Heart Check sermon series, though, will be interjected here and there just as a way of let's engage our heart as we're getting these big theologically rich sermons and and ideas, let's engage our hearts just uh, in the middle of that with some of the core essential things. How are we doing in our faith and our walk with Jesus? And so last week, Pastor Stefan shared a message called Remember Jesus. This week, I'm going to be delivering a message called Extravagant Love. Extravagant Love. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to open them up to John chapter 12, okay? John chapter 12, and as you get there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share a little story here first. Uh, let's have some fun at church this morning, hey? Let's reminisce a little bit. So, I wanna share with you uh, a story about extravagant love. Uh, I wanna share with you a story uh, from Ellie and I's dating all the way back in high school. Now, I'm gonna just give you the caveat right off the bat that this is not dating advice, okay? Young people, I'm not giving you dating advice. Uh, but I am going to share just a little bit about our history, Ellie and I. And so if you want to, you know, you want to see a picture of Ellie and I in high school? <laughs> now that is good. That is real good. That was not taken on an iPhone, I assure you. Uh, that was taken on uh, old school camera, 2005. We were going to a Christmas banquet. And so I bought that suit from MCC. Good times. Yes, okay, so any other high school sweethearts out there? Come on, none? Okay, I see a few, okay, so Ellie and I, high school sweethearts. Dating's a magical time, isn't it? You watch dating couples and you sometimes just can't help but laugh because their affection towards each other is cringy, right? Uh, It's also beautiful. Yes, they love each other extravagantly. And I remember a particular date that I took Ellie on back in high school. 
okay? I really wanted to impress Ellie, so I planned a really big all-day date, and I spared no expense. Literally, I think I spent all of my remaining money that I had on this one date. You see, uh, you know, we were celebrating big things. This was our three-month anniversary. Because when you're dating, you celebrate months. Even sometimes you'll catch a dating couple, they're like, this is our sixth day anniversary? Like, you started dating this week? Yeah, it's like a big deal, six days ago. Okay, that's awesome. And so this was our three-month anniversary, and I played it cool. I spent all my money, but I, I just brushed that off. Let's impress the girl. So we spent the day together getting chauffeured around because neither of us had our driver's license. Indeed, we didn't even have a car. And that evening, I took Ellie out for dinner. I took her to Earl's. Why Earl's, you might ask? I don't really know why Earl's, uh, because I think I thought that's what grown-ups do, and I was trying to, you know, impress. So we went to Earl's for dinner, um, and it was all right. And then afterwards, um, I should say the meal was all right. The company was extravagant. It was amazing being with Ellie, okay? Afterwards, though, I wasn't finished after this meal. We went to a park in Winnipeg, uh, and we were going to go for a little evening stroll, just two high school students walking in the park. And uh, as we meandered through the trees, we came upon a picnic blanket. How did that get there? With chocolate-covered strawberries? Oh, my goodness! Shall we sit down? So Ellie and I sit down, this picnic blanket, and then, lo and behold, a guitar is strung up in the trees. Now, this is where it gets really embarrassing. So as Ellie is eating her chocolate-covered strawberries, I've got to give you the context here. I was about to travel to India. I went to India in high school with, with a friend of mine and his family. And so this date had, you know, added emotion because I was about to leave for, for a couple weeks, and that was just breaking my high school heart. And so as Ellie's eating strawberry-covered, or chocolate-covered strawberries, I pull out the guitar, and I begin to serenade her. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Except I'll be back in three weeks. So, yeah, that was the date. Can you believe that I actually pulled it off? True story, but hey, I got the girl. See, I got my next photo here. I got the girl. So... Now, it would have been really easy to look at that and say, tone it down just a little bit. Isn't that all just a little bit too extreme? And I could have gotten that advice, advice but I probably wouldn't have listened to it anyway. I, I probably could have been asked here, that, like, isn't this just a little bit too extreme? Like, don't you regret spending all that money, giving all that time to plan that? And the answer is absolutely no. Why? Because extravagant expressions of love flow naturally when you love someone or you have a high school crush on them. I was in love, though. But those extravagant expressions just flow naturally when you're feeling passionate towards someone or something. Isn't that true? So we're going to talk about extravagant love this morning. And if you've made your way to John chapter 12... We're going to read a story of extravagant love for Jesus. So we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 11. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. He had dinner, or here a dinner was given in his honor. Mary, uh, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his, uh, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large uh, crowd of Jews followed, uh, found out that Jesus was there and came not only because, uh, to see him, but because Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, was there also. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Jesus, at the beginning of this message, I just want to declare you are worthy. You're worthy in this house, Lord. You're worthy to be followed. You're worthy to be worshipped. You're worthy of our lives. So, Father, as we dive into your word today, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd make it come to life in our hearts, that we might love you just a little bit more, that we might just give a little bit more extravagantly, and that many people will come to know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, again, not dating advice, but moving on. Context, we're going to give a little context leading up to John 12. Do you know that almost 50% of John's gospel is dedicated to Jesus' last week on earth? When you compare that to Mark at 40%, Matthew at 33%, and Luke at 25%, John just slows it right down. So as you're reading through the Gospel of John, you'll notice a large portion of the book is given just to this last week leading up to the cross. And hostility towards Jesus is rising at this point in time, especially in the region of Bethany. Multiple death threats and attempts on his life have already been made, and Jesus did retreat for a while, though not out of fear, but in order to be with his disciples. And then Jesus and his disciples head back into the tension to see God's power at the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. As Lazarus comes back to life, many Jews believe in Jesus, for he was dead for four days already. This intensified the hostility, and a plot began to form for how to kill Jesus, but only after Passover. They wanted to wait till after Passover. Jesus returns to the town of Bethany again, which is approximately three kilometers outside of Jerusalem, where he would soon die. And he arrives six days before the Passover, and what is Jesus doing on the week leading up to his death? He's having a meal with friends. He's celebrating. And think about what Jesus would have had on his mind at this time in his life. Knowing that soon he would be deserted, betrayed by friends, those sitting around the table with him, and ultimately nailed to a, a wooden cross. What would you be doing six days before that? Jesus 
is around a table with his friends, with his disciples, eating and celebrating. And it's in this setting, among those guests, that Mary anoints Jesus. So here's a question for you, because I know sometimes if you're, you know, if you're a student of the word, you've read through the gospels before, you, you might notice sometimes that gospel writers will share stories just a little bit differently. Um, and so you might be asking, is Mary here, Mary of Bethany, the same woman from Matthew 26 and from Mark 14? Because each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain a story of Jesus being anointed by a woman with perfume. Luke, however, is naturally distinct. It happens much earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's in Luke chapter 7. You can go and read that. It just has a different flavor altogether. But Matthew and Mark and John are all very similar. Yet Christians have come to different conclusions on whether these are the same events. Now, I would lean towards saying yes. I think that these three instances are the same event. But it doesn't really matter. Jesus could have been anointed with perfume multiple times by different women, and the point would remain the same. But in my opinion, which is a trick I learned from my son, if you just say, in my opinion, you're allowed to say whatever you want. So, in my opinion, however, I think that John is giving us the name of the woman who was not named in Matthew or Mark's gospel, Mary of Bethany. So I'm going to give you the who, where, when, what, and why of this story. I'm going to breeze through it just so that we're all, you know, on the same page in terms of detail. So who is involved in this instant? It's a woman from Bethany, likely Mary in all three instances in Matthew, Mark, and John. Where did it happen? Simon the leper's house. See, some find it confusing because John indicates that Martha was serving the meal, so the assumption is that they must be at Martha's house, whereas Matthew and Mark clearly state that they're at Simon the leper's house. However, John actually doesn't specify where the meal took place, only that it was in Bethany and that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. When did it happen? Another apparent discrepancy is that Matthew and Mark tell us that this meal happened two days before the Passover, while John mentions that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover. Again, there's no need for this to be two separate events, as John is telling us when Jesus arrived in Bethany, and Matthew and Mark are telling us when the banquet took place. As in, that the banquet was taking place four days after Jesus arrived in Bethany, two days before the Passover. So what happened? Jesus is anointed with expensive perfume. Was Jesus' head anointed, as was recorded in Matthew or Mark, or were his feet anointed, as referred to in John? Again, this could have been separate instances. That's totally plausible, but I think it's likely that they're the same. And the answer is that Mary anointed both Jesus' head, as was custom, as well as his feet a sign of extravagant devotion to Jesus, which John is trying to highlight when he tells the story. And then lastly, why did it happen? Here's where we clearly see that it doesn't actually matter that much at all, although I do find it interesting. The emphasis behind these anointing accounts in all the Gospels, including Luke 7, which we've left out entirely, is that the emphasis is that Jesus is worthy of our extravagant worship. Jesus is worth all of our love, all of our devotion. And so just for a caveat for for you guys, as we move forward in this message, I'm going to be assuming that Matthew, Mark, and John are all telling of the same event. But again, even if they were separate, which is totally fine, it actually doesn't matter. 
The point is the same, and all of these truths are interchangeable. The fact is that Jesus is worth our extravagant love and devotion. It's interesting to note John's particular emphasis on Mary's love and devotion to Jesus, which is what we're going to look at next. So we need to understand John's emphasis, Mary's expression of devotion to Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You see, John specifically points out that Mary's offering was extravagant and indeed scandalous. In the days of Jesus, it would not have been out of place to anoint the honored guest with oil at the banquet or some perfume. Typically, it would have been a smaller, appropriate amount of fragrant oil, perhaps dabbed on the forehead of the honored guest at the banquet, and then a bowl of water would be placed there for him to wash his feet or for his feet to be washed. So John is trying to emphasize here, he wants us to notice that Mary washed his feet with the perfume, showing that she went above and beyond the cultural norms in her expression of love and devotion to Jesus. This was extravagant and this was controversial. The IVP commentary on John says it like this. Her action would have been quite disturbing. In, what, in the wiping of his feet with her hair, Jewish women didn't let down their hair in public. This was an expression of devotion that would have come across as extremely improper. Even a little bit suggestive, by the way. Although it was, that wasn't her intention, but that's how it would have been perceived as a little bit suggestive on Mary's part. As indeed in most cultures, there is no indication of why Mary did this act, but the most obvious possibility is that it's out of her sheer gratitude for what Jesus had done for her and her brother and the revelation it brought to her of Jesus' identity, power, authority, and grace. John's focus on her anointing Jesus' feet is, uh, points out Mary's great humility. She has come to realize a bit more of the one who has been a friend to her and her brother and her sister, and her faith deepens as she recognizes her unworthiness. So again, this was extravagant, and this was controversial. So here's a question for you. Have you ever been around somebody who is so passionate for Jesus, who is just so on fire for him, that truthfully you find it uncomfortable to be around them? Now be honest, are they in your small group? Do you find them a little bit annoying? Are you married to them? Don't raise your hand. You're like, just being around you is like you're just exuding passion for Jesus and it's making me feel uncomfortable because it's convicting me. That's who Mary is to this group at the banquet for two reasons. I want to show you just two reasons why Mary is that person in this setting. And the two reasons are the metric of her devotion and the manner of her devotion. First, the metric. The metric she used to express her love for Jesus is about a pint of pure nard. Her offering was excessive, costing about a year's wage. Just think about that. A year's wage, and she poured it out in a couple of seconds. 
This is what got the disciples all riled up. In Mark 14, 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. They rebuked her for having the wrong uh, metric. They're saying, Mary, how could you do such a foolish thing? What What are you missing here? What about prudence with our resources? What about financing the ministry, Mary? Jesus won't approve of your wild metrics. But it turns out they were wrong. You know what I love so much about the metrics of the kingdom of heaven? It's how utterly different they are from the metrics that we use. Our metrics are all messed up. We think too much or we think too little and how often we get it wrong or indeed not just wrong, completely opposite. And I'll show you what I mean. Pastor Stefan has already alluded to this passage this morning. I thought that was very fitting. Jesus once told the story about metrics in a different context. And if you're reading it in Mark in my Bible, if my Bible's laying open flat, I can see both of these stories on the same page. I just love when that happens. It makes me very excited for some reason. Because you can just see the contrast here in two moments in Jesus' ministry. One, Mary pouring out a year's worth of wages on the feet of Jesus. But if you go back just two chapters, Jesus tells this story. Or it's not even a story, it's an account of what happened. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd giving their money to the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. You can almost presume, you know, it's like when the offering plate comes by and you just drop in the coins one at a time. Plink, plink. It's like, yeah, I'm going to keep going for a while, you know. You can imagine these people going like, check out this offering. They drop it in. And it's impressive But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, you can see Jesus is going, this is a discipleship moment. This is a moment that I need my disciples to understand. He calls them over to him and he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put everything, all she had to live on. Do you see our metrics are all messed up? Because we think, what good are two copper coins going to do? What difference is that going to make? Turns out that was the best investment that that woman could ever make. Those two small coins we're able to buy something that we are still talking about 2,000 years later. And it's left in the scriptures to cultivate faith. You see, big yeses and little yeses, it all counts in God's kingdom. A big yes to Jesus and a small yes to Jesus is able to do something that will last into eternity. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. Expressing extravagant love and devotion to God isn't measured solely by the quantity of what we give, but by the quality of our heart when we're giving it. It comes from the heart. You don't need to be wealthy to love extravagantly. In fact, you can have very little and love Jesus extravagantly. 
Be it a year's wages of perfume or just two copper coins, the heart can give extravagantly according to God's metrics. That's a beautiful thing. By the way, shout out to women of the Bible. Amazing stories that we are reading today. I could have titled this message, The Amazing Women of the Bible. Because they're humbling me today. I'll be honest, as I prepared this message, I just went, man, I feel like I'm not even close. I'm not even in the same league as these women. And I just want to be challenged to give more extravagant love and devotion to Jesus. Second, though, is the manner in which she expresses her love for Jesus by washing his feet with her hair. Mary's humility and utter disregard for what anybody else but Jesus thought about her in that moment is breathtaking. See, she would have had eyes just glaring at her as she undid her hair and let it down. As she began to wash his feet with this year's worth of wages with her hair. But she didn't, this for Mary had nothing to do with these great disciples, those that had done miracles already. This was about her and Jesus. You know, it reminds me of a story when David dances before the Lord with all of his might, wearing fine linen and a priestly ephod. I don't know why, I always just thought, anybody else think he danced naked before the Lord? I was like, isn't that the way the story went? No, I went and looked it up. He's clearly wearing clothes. So some people have applied that passage very wrongly. Um, Thankfully not in our church services, which is good too. Um, But David was wearing an ephod and a linen garment instead of his royal robes. That's the point we're supposed to notice, is David took off his royal robes and he put on the linen and the ephod of a priest. He identified himself with a worshiper the day where the ark was being brought back into Jerusalem. And he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was criticized harshly for his actions, yet this is how he responded. Well, he, first he said some stuff that's just not a very wise thing as a husband to say, talk, bringing dads into it. But he talks about, responds to his wife and says that, well, it's your dad's fault. The kingdom was ripped away from him and given to me. That probably would have not, not been taken very well. But then he went on to say this. I celebrated before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this. You see, David might have been, you know, looked down upon in front of his, you know, military commanding officers and those in his kingdom who went, why is our, why is our king, this mighty king, our leader, dancing around wildly before the Lord? But in that moment to David, he said, I danced before the Lord. I was here for the Lord celebrating for him, not for what other people think. And I will become even more undignified than this. Indeed, it's true. Just read the Psalms. The Bible contains the most undignified, wildly honest prayers and laments and praises written to God by David. Undignified, but beautiful. David worshiped the Lord. He didn't care what other people thought. And that's what Mary's expression of love was. It was undignified, yet it was beautiful. So here's my question. When is the last time that you worshipped him like that? When's the last time you entered into a worship service and it wasn't about the song selection? It wasn't about the talent of those singing or it wasn't about the other people who are around you and what they thought of you? When was the last time you just poured out love 
and worship and devotion to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Our worship should be undignified, but beautiful. You know, I'm gonna share a story with you of when we were at the Set Free just recently. It was an incredible time. Incredible. You could just see God moving. And it was after the cross session. We had a time of worship. Now worship, those who were there with me, you'll know what I mean. It went beyond singing and it turned to shouting. Ugly shouting, but it was a beautiful thing. As just passion was being poured out to Jesus and you could feel just this expression of gratitude after everything that you've done for us on the cross. And we were just worshiping Jesus. And you know, I'm a, I'm a conservative worshiper at times. And I've got this thing, I've had it before, where in worship I start to feel this welling of gratitude and I just wish, I wish I could be the guy to just start just clapping in worship. But every time it's like, oh, I shouldn't, I'm not that guy, I'm not that guy. Yeah, I'll just, I'll stay quiet. But as we were singing, he shall return in robes of white. A blazing sun will pierce the night. This, this gentleman behind me, this brother, he just yelled out, just yelled out, hallelujah, he said, in the middle of it. And it was like my hands involuntarily just, amen, he shall return, amen. And it just felt so free for a moment. And I know it's silly, but you know, like who else is like afraid to clap and worship ever? You know, that was a big thing for me. And I just said, but Jesus, it's about you. And I can't wait for you to return. And in that moment, Jesus was just so beautiful to me. When was the last time you had worship like that, where it just poured, poured out of you? I'm going to share a challenge with you, something I, I used to do, and I'm going to commit to, to picking it up again, this habit that I used to have. Because I'd find myself, I'd come to church, and I'd get into the worship, and for just one reason or another, I just couldn't, I just, I, I was so distracted in worship. And my mind went to lesser things like, ah, oh, I wish we would sing this song. Or, you know, you know how it is. And that, for me, I just, I so badly wanted to cultivate just beautiful worship to Jesus from my heart. Where it's not about anyone else around me, it's just between me and him. And it doesn't have to look the same. In fact, it won't look the same from me to you and for you to someone else but you know that kind of worship where it's just from your heart to God's. And so I started this thing where Sunday mornings when I'd spend time with the Lord, I'd spend time preparing my heart for worship. And I'd start by just journaling and saying, Lord, worship's coming today. And I want to be ready. And passages like this came to mind. Hebrews 13, 15, it says this, therefore, oh, that's, yeah, therefore, sorry, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Scripture says that we should come with a sacrifice of praise. Do you know what that sometimes involves? Some preparation. If you are to come to church on Sunday or come to that worship gathering or that small group and have a sacrifice of praise, why do we just always expect, I guess it'll just show up, you know, and hopefully they'll sing that song which will just like bring me into worship. Why not rather say, Lord, I want to prepare my heart. I want to prepare my sacrifice of praise so that when you come here, you're able to give it. And it's not about the other things. It's just about Jesus. And so I would begin my Sunday mornings by just in my journal writing out 
prayers of praise to God and gratitude for what he had done in my life. Imperfectly, yes, but I would, my attempt was I want to come to church with my sacrifice ready. And then after church, right as the sermon was starting, I would just write two or three lines in my journal, worship report. And I would just say, today in worship, I was captivated by the beauty of Jesus or the love of God or I just felt God's faithfulness to me in my life. And I would just give a short little report and in doing that and preparing my heart and then writing a short report on it, it just, it helped me to take steps forward in growing in that kind of extravagant worship. And so you might find an exercise like that or you can modify it however you'd like. But how are you bringing your sacrifice of praise? So we might well respond now at this point and ask, how do we become more like Mary? And that would be an appropriate question. For as we can see, she is the one that Jesus commended in this moment. Mary is the one who who left with Jesus' approval. Meaning that the other disciples got this one wrong. Jesus responded, leave her alone. It was intended that she, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. You will not always have me. You see, a friend of mine and a fellow church renewal pastor in our area, he said this to me. We were chatting about this passage, and so I, I want to just quote him. His name is Josh Frazier. He says this, of all the people in the room that day, Mary was the only one who recognized Jesus for what he was worth. He's worth everything. She recognized the beauty of who was in that room and she embraced that moment well. That's what it is when we give that pure offering of worship, of extravagant love to Jesus, of devotion We're recognizing in that moment who it is that we're singing to and we're embracing that moment well. I want to live a life like that, where I embrace the moment well, recognizing who it is that I'm singing to. And Mark, when he records this, he says, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, including Steinbach, Manitoba, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Just look at a few key phrases there. She's done a beautiful thing. What others called wasteful, Jesus looked at and said, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, not a waste at all. Then Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you. You can help them anytime you want. That's to their shame, particularly to Judas. He's saying something that sounds really spiritual, and Jesus is saying, hey, what's, what's stopping you from loving the poor? You can do that anytime you want to. Indeed, Jesus wasn't against the poor. Jesus commands us to go and care for the least of these. We should be about that work. In fact, I think this passage is telling us, you will not always have me among you. There's going to be a day, we're in that day, where we should go and extravagantly love those who have very little. 
So Jesus isn't against the poor here, but he's saying they missed the moment. That wasn't the moment for that comment. The moment that they were in demanded everything be poured out for Jesus. He's worthy of it all. Pour out the perfume. All of it. He's worthy of it all. Mary got it right. She did what she could, Jesus said. So much grace in that line. He's not expecting you to do what you can't. She did what she could. And what she did was a lot. But she did what she could. Mary responded as she could to that moment. And then lastly, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Something about that line is just so beautiful to me. Do you think Jesus meant for us to idolize Mary of Bethany? No. Jesus is the main point of this passage. Jesus is the one who we are supposed to elevate in this passage. It was left here, this story was left here as an example to us that we might go and do the same. Wherever the gospel is preached, And 2,000 plus years later, the gospel is still being preached. Wherever it is preached, Jesus wants us to to know that he is worthy of it all. He's worthy of everything. So what did Mary see that others missed in the moment? What was it that she was looking at that everybody else in the room didn't see? The disciples, this these 12 amazing men that had followed Jesus around and others in the room, one that had been raised from the dead just days before, what were they all missing that Mary caught on to? And the answer is the gospel. Mary saw the gospel. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. We don't get a clear indication of how Mary knew this, only that it was revealed to her somehow. Mary saw Jesus for who he was, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Passover Lamb, the resurrection and the life. Mary saw Jesus for who he was, and no wonder she responded in the way that she did. When we see Jesus as he is, pouring out our life becomes the reasonable response. When you truly see it for how it is, it's perfectly reasonable. Pour out the perfume. You know, one of my favorite quotes here is from a guy by the name of Samuel Whitfield. He wrote a book, and he's talking about, in the book, he's talking about John the Baptist. And the book is called, uh, Will You Choose the Wilderness? It's, I really enjoyed it. Very thought-provoking book. I want to just share with you a bit of a longer quote here, but I think it's just brilliant. Samuel Whitfield writes this, people like John the Baptist or Mary of Bethany who are wholehearted only seem extreme to us if we lack the revelation that they had. World-class musicians do not consider their practice regimen extreme because they have a revelation of what's possible when they play their instrument. Olympic athletes don't find it strange to carefully order every moment of their lives in order and deny themselves because they have been captivated by the possibilities of competition. Now listen close to this next line. 
When people love something, they consider what others find extreme to be the only reasonable response. If you find John's or Mary's life extreme, it's only because you do not yet have the revelation of God that they had. John's life is not, does not primarily expose our lack of discipline. It confronts our lack of revelation and our lack of desire. See, we look at that, or the disciples look at this instance and they go, this is outrageous. This is extreme. And it will always seem extreme to pour your life out for Jesus until you realize who he is. It's always going to seem, this is a little excessive, isn't it? But when you're captivated by who he is, by the beauty of the gospel, It becomes the only reasonable response. You see, we love because he first loved us. Extravagant love began with Jesus. It began with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we shall be called children of God. Extravagance began with God. He initiated and we respond. And until we get that, a sacrifice to him, giving something up in the here and now, will always seem like, does it really have to cost this much? And look, Jesus isn't unempathetic towards us. He gets our weakness. He understands that it's going to be difficult to say yes to him. He anticipated that and he still said, follow me. He knew the amount of lollygagging that I would do and he said, I'll take you along on the journey anyway. Come with me. That blows me away because I do a lot of griping. How about you? I do a lot of griping. Are you serious, Lord? You really want me to fast and pray? That's hard. That's that's uncomfortable. And yeah, there's an element of that that, you know, you just got to accept fasting will be difficult. But what what do we got to do? What should our emphasis be? On just doing really hard things? No, let's get our eyes on Jesus and see how extremely valuable, supremely worthwhile he is. That's the pathway of discipleship, is making much of him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. God made him who had no sin be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It's the most beautiful story ever told. Cover to cover. God's plan from the moment we rebelled against him is I'm going to pour my life out for you to make a way for you to be reconciled to me, to be redeemed. See, God started the extravagant love. We simply respond to it. You know, I just want to, for what it's worth, do I have the time? Who knows? 
Do you remember where you were, if you're old enough, when the golden goal took place? You remember that, the 2010 Olympics? Sidney Crosby scores in overtime? I remember where I was in my parents' basement, surrounded by, you know, older guys that I didn't really know that well, and we're all sitting on the edge of our seat. It's in overtime, and if Canada doesn't win the gold medal, what's even the point? What's even the point? And then Sidney Crosby comes along, and he put that goal in. And you think it was like, hmm, should I celebrate in this moment? Should I completely lose my mind and go crazy? No, it just came out of me. And next thing I know, I am jumping up and down and hugging guys that I don't even know. And it's like, oh my goodness, we just won the gold medal. What's my point? My point is that extravagant expressions of love pour out of us when we love someone or we love something. So we need to get our eyes on Jesus. Mary wasn't being impulsive in this moment. Mary was just doing what she felt reasonable for who he was, who was in the room with them. This is the son of God. He's worth it all. So in conclusion, how do we become more like Mary? How do we love more extravagantly this Christmas season? Don't you want to do something beautiful for Jesus, the one who gave, us, gave up everything for us? How can we pour out our lives for him, the one who will return in robes of white? Where do we start? We start at the feet of Jesus. Mary was the disciple at Jesus' feet. You know, it's amazing to me. We get three clear examples of this amazing woman of faith in the Gospels. And wouldn't you know that in all three instances, Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And interestingly, Mary is always juxtaposed to someone else that is referenced in that passage. It's always like there's Mary doing Mary stuff. And then there's like, what about this other person who's responding completely different in the moment? I'll just give you these rapid fire. We're not going to unpack these passages. But last week, Pastor Stephan talked about Luke 10. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she was receiving his teaching. She was soaking it all in. And what did Martha say? Make her help me. Why isn't she being productive? And Jesus said she's chosen the right thing. Mary was the disciple who sat at his feet receiving worship. Then John 11, 31 to 37, Mary again shows up at the feet of Jesus, mourning for the loss of her brother. He had died. Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, come with me. See, there were others there that were scoffing, saying, surely if he opened the eyes of the blind, he could have prevented this man from dying. Again, Mary's response is just different. She's at his feet. She's not scoffing. And then lastly, John 12. Mary's at the feet of Jesus worshiping. See, the disciples are indignant. They're enraged at this waste. And Mary is just pouring it all away in this beautiful love offering to Jesus. What can we learn from this? That disciples like Mary aren't born, they're made. They're formed, to be more specific. That extravagant love and devotion to Messiah Jesus isn't something that we do, it's something that we cultivate. Something that we cultivate. How do we cultivate extravagant love? Where are such vessels formed at his feet? We look at Mary and we see how she got there in John 12. Is she's really been there the whole time? 
She'd been at Jesus' feet the whole time. And so how do we respond to that? We've got to get desperate. And we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal who Jesus is to us. We've got to ask Jesus, reveal yourself to me. I need a greater picture of who you are. Because until then, we're going to stay stuck down here in this realm of everything is going to feel like this massive cost. Again, I'm trying to balance the yes, we will feel the cost as a disciple of Jesus. But our go-to strategy for loving extravagantly should be to get our eyes on him. That's our strategy. We've got to get our eyes on him and we've got to get to his feet. And so in closing, I want to give you some ways to grow in loving extravagantly. Number one, establish a personal quiet time with Jesus. Abide in Christ and let your life be like precious oil that you store up and pour out on Jesus' feet. Number two, give something away. Look for opportunities to be generous in big ways and in small ways. Look for opportunities to give yourself away, to give possessions away. Number three, lay something down for Jesus. An example like David Wilkerson, Pastor Stephen talked about this at Prayer Summit, how he gave up two hours of TV a night in order to pray and look at what God has done in his life. Teen Challenge came from that decision to lay something down at Jesus' feet. Start a gratitude and worship journal. Write out blessings and thank God for who he is. Consider and pray how you could contribute to the Christmas offering. And you might think, did you plan this message to go with the Christmas offering? Nope. Just realized that this morning and thought that'd probably be an appropriate thing for me to add onto this list. But consider and pray, giving generously to kingdom advancement work. Number six, pour out your life for others by serving them extravagantly. Volunteer at the church. Sacrifice your time, your gifts, and your energies. Or volunteer and serve in the community. Find ways to be a part of the mission of serving. And practice hospitality. Maybe it's time for you to get to know your neighbors. Come to a set freer and empower. Say yes to baptism. Start each day with a yes to Jesus. Look for opportunities in your day, big or small, to joyfully obey Jesus. And then lastly, spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. Share him with others in your life. This one who gave it all for us. Let that message ring out of you. And so, I'm gonna close with prayer here. I think as the worship team comes up, bow your heads with me. Jesus, we thank you for your supreme worth, for your goodness. You are worthy of it all, Jesus. Jim Elliott, the missionary who famously lost his life in the 60s for bringing the gospel to the kingdom, wrote in his journal, Uh, years earlier, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus, help us to not hold on to these temporary things. We don't want to forfeit what we could have from you. Jesus, I pray that we would grow as a church in extravagant love, pouring out our gratitude and praise to you because you are worthy of it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray.